Welcome to the Michigan Bow Hunters Podcast, the voice of Michigan's hunting archer. Now here's your host, Bill Hoffman. Hello and welcome back to a very special episode of the Michigan Bow Hunters Podcast. I'm your host, Billy Hoffman. We are driving through downtown Royal Oak. There is a pedestrian that wants to get hit. Stay off of the road, you crazy walker. Okay. Anyway, I've got with me Dave McChesney, a fellow uh, MBH member, as well as Justin Barber. Now, Justin is driving, but he's going to do his best to join in in the conversation. The reason... The reason, yeah, not get us killed exactly. The reason we are doing this podcast in the car and things may sound a little bit different is we just went and saw Meat Eater Live. That's right. Meat Eater, the host, uh, the brainchild of Steve Rinella, uh, Michigan boy, done good. Moved out to Montana, but we won't hold that against him. He is doing a nationwide tour where he goes and talks about hunting and fishing and the outdoors, has some special guests and then plays a little bit of their version of outdoors trivia. It was a fun night. We had dinner beforehand. What did you guys think of the show? Being a Meat Eater fan on Netflix, I know Steve from his hunting shows and everything like that, but I haven't really listened to his podcast before. So it was a little different to see the format, how they do it, how they do the trivia and everything. I listened to uh, Mark Kenyon's Wired to Hunt, so I'm familiar with him. Mark um, Kenyon, not to interrupt you, but Mark Kenyon was a guest. Yes. Tonight. Yes, and then he was just, there. Uh, if you could, uh, I know it's tough in the car, <laughs> is to uh, hold the microphone like I am, like up to your mouth. A little closer. There you Got go. It. Yeah. There we go. Uh, again, we're in the car. It's going to be what it is. But um, So anyway, you were talking about you do you have listened to Mark Kenyon's Wired to Hunt podcast, but not a lot of the meat eater stuff, right, Dave? Yeah. So familiar with the familiar with the hunting show and the Wired to Hunt podcast, but not familiar with the the other ones, the Bear Grease and the trivia and all that stuff. So it was cool to see. It was really cool to see a lot of like minded people there. Um, how big the hunting culture is here in Michigan. Um, I just wish more people would join the uh, the Michigan Bow Hunters podcast. So hopefully they do. Well, yeah, we have a lot of people join listening and joining the podcast, but also we want them to join the association itself, right? Yeah, so that's what I figured. What do you think of the show, Justin? Uh, as a longtime listener and follower, I thought it was pretty interesting to see basically a podcast play out in front of us. And I thought it was a good show. Our seats weren't the best, but we made the best of it and got creative. Let's talk, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, I booked the tickets. I bought them and invited you guys. I had no idea when booking these tickets that it um, didn't involve actual chairs. Like everyone else in the entire audience had chairs except for us. And we were in this benched row right up against where the soundboard and all that was. So wires between it it ended up working out okay because we kind of like stood up on the bench and like maybe ended up with a better view than a lot of people albeit definitely not more comfortable it was definitely a good view yeah had had a good view um so we're gonna kind of go over some of the topics that were discussed tonight dave took pretty good notes I'm going to let him kind of quarterback the uh, the overall conversation here as we drive home. One thing I will mention as a as a stage performer, right? I mean, I'm a stand-up comedian. I am Disney-trained. I have uh, sang and performed in theater shows and danced and, and been characters and acting. And most people listening understand my qualifications as far as that go. I thought the guys did pretty good as far as being personalities on stage. Because it's a lot different being on stage in front of audiences than it is doing a TV show or even doing a, a closed studio broadcast. One thing I did notice is I don't think Steve was totally comfortable up there alone. You know, I, I, I saw that too. When he was doing his uh, initial monologue to start the show, wasn't facing the crowd a little bit, his head was down, you know, kind of... Kind of like that sort of thing. So that w- that was interesting to yeah, see that. Kind of breaking some of the rules of stand-up. And if you've never been taught those rules or they don't come natural, but like you never turn your back to the audience. You you shouldn't be making contact with different people in the audience because if you make contact with one, there's about 100 people in that general area that think you're looking at them. Uh, you know, and uh, it just, 
uh, again, we're we're asking a lot of a guy that hunts for a living and produces media, and he's a, he's a writer, of course. But not everyone can get up on stage and, and do something totally, you know, on a professional level. That being said, I didn't. I don't think it took away from the show. I, I don't think so at all. I I would definitely agree that his stage presence probably wasn't the best, but he still had the same witty commentary that you get in the podcast and his personality definitely did not seem any different but his body language definitely gave off some nervousness one thing to note was the show was sold out yeah it was a packed house it was very packed i i I don't know i couldn't do what he did that's for sure yeah it it would definitely i could but i I would love the opportunity (laughs) i was like dying to get a i love that theater it was at the royal oak music theater which holds about 2500 people so um that that's a pretty big crowd to perform in front of So um, the, the show opened up. Chester came out, sang a couple songs, did a couple little ditties. Chester is started as an intern with Meat Eater, I believe, and has kind of worked his way up through, you know, as co-host and producer and done some other things. Uh, that was fun. And then um, Spencer Newhart came out. Now, Spencer is the flip side as far as presentation goes. Spencer did a fantastic job of emceeing the show, and I think that's why they had him do it, because he's good at it. Yep. I also kind of wish we had more of Chester during the show. We just saw him in the beginning, yeah, singing those songs. I think it would have been a good added flair to have him up on one of those chairs during their interviews. Yeah, because Chester always has like this aw shucks kind yeah. of like personality like the, in the good pod. old boy kind of thing going yeah, on yeah yeah and they pick on him a little bit yeah which is pretty fun but i understand with having mark kenyon and the guy from mucc for uh, steven but i forget his full name um up there uh as the special guest uh there's only so many chairs and microphones and, and all that but uh still it i agree more chester would have been fun yeah so dave uh hopping into the um the, the kind of the notes you took, I don't remember if there was things specific to when just Steve was up or if it more, your notes were more about the panel discussions or what, but I'm going to kind of let you quarterback the, the next uh, little section here that we talk about. What are your Sure. So Steve's monologue was really just about sharing funny stories. Um, and he kind of went into some detail of his time growing up in Michigan, which was really cool to hear. But Mainly what I wanted to jot down and chat about tonight was the panel discussion. And the first one hits home with a recent podcast that you actually did uh, about naming deer. And Are you referring to the Fred Bear and Frustrations episode? I believe it was, yes. Okay, the number one episode that I made most people mad with. <laughs> was it really? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but keep going. So... What we see on today's social media culture is uh, naming deer. The I, I don't even know. I've heard probably 50 to 100 different examples, right? Everyone has. Oh, yeah. Uh, the wide nine, the big eight, the drop tine. Well, not only that, you know, those are kind of just descriptive names. I would say that is the traditional way of naming a deer. Like, yeah, I have a big eight, I have a tall nine, whatever it may be. But giving them different names, human names, whatever it may be. Well, tonight they brought up Frank. Ah, yes. I killed Frank. <laughs> so there, there's part of it where, you know, you could say, yeah, I got that big buck that came back through. And then you send that to your buddy. He's like, oh, that's not the big buck that I saw. The big buck that I saw is this. So the term that big buck isn't really descriptive. So when, if hopefully you have multiple big bucks that you're trying to target. Just saying that big buck really isn't that helpful. Yeah, I totally agree. I have a a friend who hunts a piece of private and he's talking about the deer he sees on camera and that he sees out of the stand and he's always just using big buck or small six. And I, he's shown me tons of trail pictures, but I don't always know exactly what he's talking about. And if he did name him, I would be able to keep track of that a lot better and possibly get more excited for him, depending on what he's seeing. Yeah, I'm not anti-naming deer. I mean, I think it's a little silly sometimes, uh, but I think it's fun silly, not negative silly. Um, <laughs> then again, like, I'm just the... Uh, the type of hunting that we do in Michigan, and especially where us three hunt, 
It's pretty rare that we're on one specific deer. I have never named a buck. <laughs> the mature deer that I have harvested, I've never got on camera before, and I've got like six cameras on public land, down to four, thanks to some unfortunate circumstances. But and well, in the episode <laughs> of Fred Bear and Frustration, some of the frustrations that I spoke about were the fact that. Your cameras were stolen. Yeah, some camera vandalism, and, so to speak. In hunting the same areas as you, and you've we've you've kind of shared those images with me. Like I'm not out the money, but I'm out the pictures that you would have yep. shared with me. Yep. That being said, though, that one deer that you did kill a couple years ago out there, I got a picture of it. Oh, that's right. A yeah, long ways away, like and, a couple miles, and video. Yeah, video and pictures of that same deer. Yeah, so and that was. Not to get off topic, but that was actually one of the first deer I ever got on camera that I got excited about. And, and I think I always give credit where credit is due. I think we killed that deer. Yes, in a way, in a way. <laughs> and I've told that story here on the. On I this hurried podcast. up at suffering. <laughs> yeah, all right. Uh, for those of you not familiar, if you go back to the shared podcast, the, sh- the swap cast, we called it with uh, generations to hunt. I told the whole story of that. Uh, that was the deer that lost both of its legs, and still, Justin and I had to track it down in knee high water, and it worked out. But. Uh, Almost chase it down. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, missing quivers and all kinds of fun stuff with that one. So um, anyway, uh, back to you, Dave. Uh, so we talked, we kind of covered the, uh, or they covered the um, the naming of deer. And I was, Stephen Ronello was not surprisingly, like, not super in favor of it. But also understood why, why people do it. I think it was more of a, just a point of where you could make fun of Mark. Yeah, probably. Yeah. So what what's next on your uh, your The second list? topic that they covered was very divisive being mandatory harvest reporting. And this got a good reaction out of the crowd. Uh, a lot of boos and a little bit of cheers mixed in. So I forgot who it was, uh, but they mentioned a con or sorry, a pro of it. Um, being able to view, I believe it was Mark, uh, being able to view the live harvest numbers day to day published by the Michigan DNR. Yeah, I think that's a huge, that's a huge pro. In fact, if you go back two episodes on this actual podcast, when I sat down with the president of Michigan Bow Hunters, Bob Jones, I was literally looking up and telling him you were. some of the statistics as far as antlered versus uh, antlerless deer harvest. So, um, and I was just doing exactly what Mark Kenyon was talking about and the guy from MUCC was talking about. I was just on the Michigan DNR website looking up how many deer have been killed in each county. And, in fact, if you think back, um, I think it was the three of us in our little text uh, chain that we – our little group text chain that we were going. We were talking about the youth hunt and its impacts and everything. And I said, listen, only 165 deer were killed in Genesee County during the youth hunt. Mm-hmm. And you were like, oh, yeah, I guess that doesn't seem so bad. you know." And I – you know, that was just a short little conversation, but being able to have those numbers is a huge bonus. So I, you know, do I have a, do I personally have a problem with mandatory harvest reporting? No. Am I glad they decriminalized it and took it out of the misdemeanor realm and put it into civil infraction? Well, with my work and what I do, I probably think that was probably a good, a good decision. It, yeah, it probably was a good choice. I really like the deer reporting numbers. I I think it provides hunters with a lot more useful information than just word of mouth and hearing what your buddy shot. It's uh, I think it's a great tool that hunters can use, and they can kind of see how their county is doing and the buck to doe ratios. And if you do have the opportunity to do some like herd management, if you have like nice private land or a lease, you can look at the ratio of bucks to does and kind of make some management decisions off that what's going on in your area yeah so and then one of one of the the big contentious spots with the whole topic of mandatory uh harvest reporting was uh previously you had to or they wanted you to put a pin exactly where you killed the deer and some that people. that got a big reaction out of the crowd. I yeah, wonder how many hunters actually followed that, even <laughs> when it was required. Well, that's what they kind of joked about, and they said a lot of people were just picking the local Walmart. Yeah. 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 And the downside of that is what they said is when they had exact locations, let's say they checked a processor and a processor had a CWD positive deer. 
they could say, okay, that deer was killed where? Apparently, the local Walmart has a CWD problem. (laughs) That was the joke they kind of told, right? So what the state of Michigan has done is they've gone now and, you know, generalized. I I believe it's by DMU or county or whatever it is, deer management unit. So kind of two. So that was the two big changes they made in the program, which is an evolving program. One, they decriminalized it, uh, made it a civil infraction, which is the same thing as a parking ticket. And two... They uh, expanded some of the the time where they give you seven days instead of three days. Oh, and then three was they expanded the area that you reported of where you shot the deer from. So you got, I'm a little bit older than you guys, but I can remember the DNR, (laughs) okay, the harvest reporting numbers. They used to count how many deer came across the Mackinac Bridge after gun season on the back of trucks and trailers. Like, when you paid to cross the bridge, they would ask you how many deer you shot. Okay. Oh, geez. And then they would have deer check stations um, basically along the way down I-75. There'd be one in, like, Gaylord and then Bay City and then Flint and then Pontiac, pretty much all the way down to the state of Ohio, down the, the, the length of 75. And that was it. Then they kind of did some math and they said, well, if we missed this many and that, then they would send out the voluntary things in the mail, you know, and hunters would get one in the mail. It was a joke. I remember that. It, mm-hmm. it was it was asinine, if you ask me. So to and then to base, you know, we try to base our conservation decisions on, on science, right, and not ballot box um, biology. And if you use bad numbers, you have bad science. So... I think this is the way to go, and I think mandatory harvest reporting eventually will lead to perhaps like a one-buck rule or further changes in our legislation. It'll give us the backbone to make Michigan a better hunting state. That is the silver lining, hopefully, and the hopeful wish, definitely, of most hunters is that something good will come of this extra... Um, analysis of what hunters harvest and I'm hopeful I'm hopeful that eventually Michigan will get its act together and we'll get better management and more big deer running around and I mean if you look at the harvest numbers the disparity is pretty obvious about how many bucks are killed versus how many does and another point I wish Michigan would talk about or heart or information that they would collect on those harvest numbers is um, actual bucks versus does because it's just antlered and non-antlered and the button buck. Killed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or the mature buck that's killed in January that's already dropped. Which you know, there's not many of those situations happening. No, but, that's probably a unique can, outlier. Yeah. But you know, for those of us that hunt Oakland County, Wayne County, Monroe County, there's a lot of people hunt. You know, hunt until January 31st. So it's it's a possibility. But yeah. Um, it makes total sense. Uh, Dave, your thoughts? Yeah, I am all for the mandatory harvest report. Uh, last year when you had to drop the exact pin, I wasn't a fan of that. Uh, but this year now that it's a section or the county, I can't remember which one it was. I am, I am all for it. Like, like Bill mentioned, the, uh, good name, good numbers gives you good data. gives you good results and everything like that. They can make informed decisions to help manage the herd. Um, and one thing I actually doing prep for this, I, I use that, that, uh, harvest report on the website there. And I think we'll talk about that in segment two, getting into the numbers a little bit. Um, but one thing that, uh, that Steve brought up was in Alaska in their hunting regs, their DNR, when they, when they do their harvest report, they have to use exact coordinates of the kill. And the DNR has every right to go inspect your harvest location. That was fascinating. Yeah. And none of that's going to be private land, uh, generally, in Alaska. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah. But, you know, I, I think it's time for Michigan to look at what, uh, what works in other states and kind of model ourselves after what were the best of the pros and cons of what works all over the United States. Not necessarily what works in Alaska works here, right? But when it comes to whitetail management, I'm pretty darn sure what works in Ohio would work here. Absolutely. 
I think we're on the right track. I just hope that they uh, change a couple big things here in the near future. The culture is definitely starting to shift yes. as Michigan hunters look to other states and see like what their deer herd is producing when everyone's kind of scratching their heads and saying, what what's going on here? Why are we not getting that same result? Right. But for those of you listening, you can't just hope and pray and, oh, things are getting better. You have to be like the three guys that are on this podcast right now. You you need to put your effort and your money where your mouth is, and you need to join the organizations like the Michigan Bow Hunters Association, like Michigan Longbows, like Ducks Unlimited, like MUCC. Uh, you know, if... I'm going to quote a Broadway musical. Are you guys prepared for this? Uh, if you stand for nothing, what will you fall for? And that's a line from Hamilton. I was about to say, that's Hamilton, isn't it? It yeah. is Hamilton. The only musical I've ever listened to. <laughs> but it's a pretty darn good quote. If you stand for nothing, what will you fall for? So we can all hope that hunting gets better, or we can actively do something about it. And to actively do something about it, go to michiganbowhunters.com, and all the information is right there and how you can join. We provide this podcast to you for free as a recruitment to tool, of course, but also to try to build our organization and our strength in Lansing. Okay, uh, that was mandatory. Uh, next topic. Yes. <laughs> We're hitting them all, folks. Yes. Good seg- segue here with the MUCC. Um, they talked about dove hunting and sandhill crane hunting. Oh, both topics, bow hunters are... Uh, I'm fired up about it, though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I can promise you there's not a single Michigan bow hunter that wouldn't like to eat some ribeye in the sky. I've always wanted to try one. Okay, so Justin, you're from Texas. Yep. Which where uh, um, sand, Sandhill Crane and Doves are both hunted. Have you had them both? I have not had Sandhill Crane. Where I grew up, uh, there was no Sandhill Crane allowed, so I didn't... Oh, okay. uh, hunting allowed. So I didn't get the opportunity to do that, but uh, dove hunting is a very, it's almost like, it's probably more like the Michigan opener of gun season here than anything else in Texas. It's always on September 1st and everyone and their kid and their mom and their dog goes out in the field and tries to whack some doves. And it's a really fun social sport and uh, it's a very challenging shoot, but it's pretty rewarding. There's lots of targets. And when you do get your doves, which down there, the limit is 15 dove per person, which is a pretty generous limit. So you can go through a lot of ammo real quick, but the dove meat is actually, it's probably up there in my top two or three, as far as wild game goes, it is extremely tasty. I would probably put it up there with crane. I've never had crane, but everyone always talks about how crane are the ribeye of the sky. I think dove, probably would rival them wow. they are very good the sad thing is and what the gentleman from mucc said is that uh dove has been voted on now and put into law that it's not a game species so it would literally take a super majority to get a ballot back onto the uh legislative floor and then we would have to vote again to take morning dove or, or doves uh in overwhelmingly vote so he said uh, the chances of hunting doves in Michigan will probably never happen in yeah. our lifetimes. It's unfortunate. His exact quote was, on a scale of 1 to 10, it is a negative 10. So it's dead with no chances, unfortunately. But when it comes to Sandhill Cranes, they are getting support, but they're not there yet. And it's, he, he mentioned it's legal, and they have the blessing and the support from the feds, from the fed, uh, Federal Migra- Migratory Bird coalition uh because it is a it's a it's a migratory bird so it's it's controlled by the feds so it's really just up to us at the state level yeah the state just has to put together a management system and a season for them and whether that is getting tags like you're hunting turkeys almost or a daily bag limit or a very limited season on them whatever they decide would be very interesting to see and it would help a lot with our agri- agriculture deprivation problem with sandhill cranes and that interesting law where hunters can or not hunters but farmers, farmers can carry a 22 with them while they're plowing a field or doing workout on their field and they can shoot cranes under that deprivation permit but they are not allowed to touch the bird after they have shot it they can't 
utilize the meat or any part of the bird. They which, kill it and it lays there in the field to rot. Why not? What a waste. Allow hunters to be a part of that solution and get some conservation dollars and get some meals on some plates. So the good news with the Sandhill Crane topic is they're being very strategic with it. So they know that it won't pass right now, but as they're gaining support and if something changes at the state government level, they're going to start pushing for it. So it's definitely on their radar and it's definitely something that they're pushing for, which I believe the majority of us listening to this or that are in the the hunting world agree with that the Sandhill Crane season should be open on some level. Yeah, and I think in our lifetime we'll see that either put to a vote or the NRC will just uh, create a season, so which can happen both ways. So the NRC can either say, yes, this is a game species, here is a management plan, or the people can vote and say, we want, we agree this is a game species, um, you know, and then they say, okay, we've made it a game species, now you do have to make it uh make a management plan so um yeah I was, I was pleasantly surprised as far as that and listen it's not like we're like oh i need something i need another thing to kill or i've heard hunting them is very challenging it would be near impossible as a duck hunter right i am often in the same environment that uh, sandhill cranes are in and we actually even sometimes use sandhill crane decoys as confidence decoys for ducks and I have probably, like this season, probably have had one or two cranes come within shooting distance of me. They are extremely wary, and they're old. They're smart. They're smart birds, so it wouldn't be an easy hunt by any means if it did become legal. Yeah, and bringing it back to, to the whole Meat Eater thing, Meat Eater does have an episode, or, or maybe two episodes, where they hunt sandhills. I believe one of them was in, yep. was in Texas or Arkansas, and the other one was up in Canada. And they were using full-body... Full body taxidermy yeah. birds because the birds were just that decoy shy that uh, that it w- they wouldn't come in. Now, th- I will say this. The first couple of seasons they open up hunting in Michigan, I think it's going to be a little bit easier than the rest of the coming seasons. For sure. But they'll figure it out quick. Right. Yeah. Well, once they figure out, hey, those guys in those little huts go boom boom and we go die die <laughs> you know it's it's, it's a kind of a, a different world so but again that kind of um was just covered by the gentleman from mucc which of course if you're familiar with michigan united conservation clubs it's an affiliate club with us here at the michigan bow hunters association final topic archery shot distance and people on social media kind of glamorizing the long shot saying this is what I can do or this is how far I can shoot or thinking that they're better in some way than other hunters because they can shoot a deer at 50 yards or an elk at 90 or 100 yards or something like that. Which of course is a little bit of a hot button topic here inside the Michigan Bow Hunters Association as we've just recently had meetings and discussions and voting and decided to lengthen some of the 3D targets at our association shoots. Um, and I definitely have some thoughts on that when it comes to practice and 3D shoots. So for the past three years, I've gone, gone up to Total Archery Challenge. Uh, in which, if anyone has ever been there, they are very, very long and hard technical shots that you take there. But the thing that I really believe is you need to shoot, you need to practice at double your hunting range. So if you, you know, say 30 yards is your max distance or 40 yards is your max distance, whatever it may be, whatever you're comfortable with, you need to be practicing at 60 and 80, even further maybe, you know, so those long shoots, those long practices, those really technical shots really helps in, in the deer woods when the time, you know, when, when that deer comes out in front of you finally. Um, yeah, we say, and we've said it a couple times on this show uh, in the past, you know, when you're really good at making a 50-yard shot, that 20-yard shot feels like a cupcake. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, last year, I, I took a deer at... Uh, 46 yards and it was in a food plot on private land 
The deer didn't know we were there, didn't have a care in the world, was standing perfectly broadside, was calm. You know, I was able to take that, all those body cues and everything like that, range it perfectly so I knew exactly where where that buck was and took the shot. And even still, you know, and with practicing at, at very long distances and, and being very confident with myself at that distance, by the time the arrow got there, he went from broadside to a really hard quartering two and my arrow entered the front shoulder right where I was aiming but exited the kind of close to the rear ham you know so even though it was a perfectly calm deer he was just eating away his evening dinner you know he still had that reaction in that short amount of time yeah and this distance is going to be different for everyone now, Dave just got done talking about, you know, taking a 47-yard shot. He happens to be one of the best long-distance shooters I've ever had the pleasure of being on a 3D course with. I personally wouldn't take that shot because, A, I have a lot slower bow than you. But, <laughs> um, B, it's just not a shot I'm super comfortable with. And that's what Mark Kenyon, the guy from Wired to Hunt, was kind of bringing up. He had had a couple of deer uh, shot or shots that he took around the 40-yard range that uh, didn't work out so great for him. So, uh, he had a phrase do you remember the phrase it was, it was like make 30 cool again or yeah, something make it cool to kill at 20 make it cool to kill at 20 i like it make, that's good you know in, in you know i come from a mixed bag of compounds slash traditional shooters you know I've, I've killed deer with my recurve and my longbow so like that 20 becomes like 12 mm-hmm. <laughs> you know uh but yeah I, I like that make it cool to kill at 20 what do you think justin uh from my personal experience, I have shot at a buck that was only at 33 yards, and it completely ducked my arrow. So I'm definitely on the more conservative uh, shot distance side of things. And an, an interesting thing that was recently brought up in another Meat Eater podcast with Levi Mornick, Morgan, who's the best archer in the world. The Michael Jordan of yep, archery. There's no argument there. He doesn't even like those 40-yard shots. No. That the average archer says, oh, yeah, I can make that shot. He says that 40 to 50 yard distance is probably the worst distance to shoot at a white-tailed deer because they're close enough to hear the bow go off. And I, think they, he, I think he was 30 to 50. Was it 30 to 50? Yeah, because he was saying 30 to 50, it gives them, they can, they're close enough to hear it and far enough away to move. Yeah. And at 50 plus for him, again, the best archer in the world, uh, at 50 plus he was saying the deer don't hear it. Yep. I'm definitely not going to be taking any 50-yard shots anytime soon on a white-tailed deer. Not in Michigan. No, not not here. But if you're on an elk hunt out west, those type of those type of distances are something that guys practice for and um, may have to pull off. Again, elk don't don't jump, they don't spook, they don't duck the arrow. So it's kind and of they a, are got a lot larger boiler room too. Uh, yeah, <laughs> a lot more. You're hitting the size of a car door, not the size of a balloon, right? So this is also coming from a guy that's never elk hunted. So <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. And, and one thing I would say too is it comes with experience of knowing your terrain, having the time to to check the deer's body language and everything like that. And you know, after that shot, I I looked at the film because I actually had my dad in the tree with me, which was really really cool. Um, so he had film of the deer and and being able to see that string jump and that reaction you realize like should you you start questioning yourself should you you know take such long shots and that was when i had my 3d set up uh, i had a single pin slider and this year i changed to a three pin fixed so it's 20 30 40 and that limits me to a 40 yard shot and now that i've been a little bit more mobile hunting the majority of public land the deer are a lot more wired let me tell you that so I don't even think a 40-yard shot would have been possible this year under the best circumstances. So uh, you definitely have to learn. You you definitely have to know your setup. You have to know your skills and ability. And you have to have the experience of understanding the deer's body language and what situation you are in before you judge uh, or before you're able to say, yes, I'm comfortable or no, I'm not. Yeah, totally agree. Again, it's it's up to each person individually where they practice and and where they're comfortable with. I'm not going to tell someone uh, what they did was unethical um, unless I'm 
fully confident that it was or something like that. So that that pretty much wraps up the main portion of what uh, Meat Eater cov- what they covered in the uh, the panel uh, section. So they took a short little break, and so are we. We're going to come back in the next segment. And they didn't do a, a question and answer or a Q&A at Meat Eater Live, but we're going to do it here. Dave had some questions prepared that he might have asked Ronella and the crew. And um, Justin and I don't really know the questions, so we're going to do our best to answer them. Give as, our opinion at least. Give our opinion <laughs> at least. So we'll be right back after this short little break. This episode of the Michigan Bowhunters Association podcast is brought to you by Bear Sign. Bear Sign is a full-service black bear guide and outfitter in Ontario, Canada. Reach out to Bear Sign via their phone number, 807-826-3742. Again, give Bear Sign a call if you're interested in hunting black bear in Ontario, Canada, 807 826 3742. We'd like to thank Bear Sign for supporting Michigan Bow Hunters for multiple years. They have donated a bear hunt to MBH, which we have auctioned off and raffled off at our annual banquets. Again, that's Bear Sign 807 826 3742. This episode of the Michigan Bowhunters Association podcast is brought to you by Brooks Archery. You can find out more info about Brooks Archery at brooksarchery.com. Of course, we all are all familiar with Brooks Archery as they've been serving the Kalamazoo area for over 50 years. They believe that archery is more than a business, it's a lifestyle, and they're constantly looking for equipment that will give their customers the best quality and value. Brooks Archery offers the leading industry bows, accessories, and hunting equipment to help you be more successful. Check out brooksarchery.com. This episode of the Michigan Bowhunters Association podcast is brought to you by the Great Northern Bow Hunting Company. They design and build every bow with you in mind and with respect for a long and noble hunter-gatherer lineage we are all connected to. They build hunting bows and their bows are designed to make you the very best bow hunter you can be. For more information on the Great Northern Bow Hunting Company, check out their website, gnbco.com. That's the Great Northern Bow Company, gnbco.com. Here at the Michigan Bowhunters Association, we have quite a few businesses and organizations that have stepped up and helped us out over the years. The first I'd like to tell you about is the Lost Nation Archery, where traditional archery means personal service. Lost Nation Archery can be reached at 1-888-800-7880. Again, that's 1-888-800-7880. Thank you, Lost Nation Archery, for always supporting the Michigan Bowhunter. And we are back here, segment two of the Michigan Bowhunters podcast, live in the car on our way back, uh, coming through uh, Oakland County. Now we're in back into Genesee County, wrapping up. We got the Q&A section from Mr. Dave McChesney in the back. These are the questions he was going to ask the, uh, I don't know if you want to call them professionals, but but the, the big hunting stars that were up on the stage. That's not Justin and I, but we're going to do our best. So, Dave, uh, what, what uh, brain busters were you going to ask these guys? <laughs> brain busters. So the one thing about deer hunting is it comes to uh, ethics and the taking of a life. You know, one of Steve Ranella's uh, movies or shows, whatever you want to call it, is Stars in the Skies. And I have watched that 
numerous times. So, and, and I've talked with other people, you know, non-hunters about taking a life, taking a deer's life to feed yourself, to feed your family and everything. So my question was going to be is, is it possible to get over the feeling of taking a life? Even with the most ethical, clean and quick kill, I still get that sinking feeling in my stomach for taking that deer's life, even though I know it will nourish me with its meat. What are your thoughts on that? Go ahead. Uh, hmm. That's a tough one. Um, I usually don't feel that remorse until I've actually put my hands on the animal and you really get that appreciation and you get to marvel at the wondrous animals that we get the opportunity to, to hunt and harvest. Um, I don't think that should ever go away really as a hunter and a decent human being, any life that you take, whether it's a cow that you get to eat steak at the steakhouse or a chicken, even any animal at all. I always like to think about what this thing did for us and it's a little more personal, especially bow hunting when you get to see the white of their eyes and make that choice in the moment that that is the animal that you do want to harvest and you have to live with the consequences of that decision and unfortunately sometimes it doesn't always work out in the greatest way not always a clean kill but even with those clean kills doesn't even go 20 yards doesn't even know what happens you i still get that same feeling of remorse after the excitement has worn off from the initial shot and once the track job's done that's when i kind of reminisce and think back to the hunt and think back to what that animal has probably seen and been through and how i'll never even understand its struggle in life and there's some road stuff up here looks like somebody ran off the road oh they smoked oh, a deer herd two deer down a whole herd Whoa. And that's that's how you know this is live. Yeah. <laughs> that's why you need to shoot more does. Shoot more does. Speaking about overpopulation, one of the following questions. Well, I liked, I liked your answer, Justin, and I think it makes me look like a pure sociopath. <laughs> <laughs> because, and, and it might just be because I'm a little bit older and I've killed more deer than you. Um, I want to have that, that emotional aspect of a deer harvest I want to have that moment where I put my knee down put my hand on the deer and, and thank it's for thank it's uh, thank it for its life I, I'm just gonna be honest I have found myself in, in these you know I'm middle age now in these later years in life still obviously respecting the deer you know and oh, yeah. but uh, I have found myself less and less emotional when it comes to that that line of thinking um maybe a perfect example is like are they becoming bluegill to me mm, yeah or are, for me or, ducks or or carp for me like yeah. when i go out and i shoot a bucket full of carp I, there's no emotion there for me. Yeah. I, I took its life. It's not any different than that deer. It's it's not going to nourish my family and all those things you said. But for me, uh, it, it and I don't, I don't know how to justify it other than saying I, I if you're a person of faith, you you may feel that we were put here and given dominion over the animals. Uh, in having that dominion is is plucking a deer from this earth the same as picking an apple in the big picture yes it is that the amount of harvest that happens now in the united states it's totally sustainable and almost negligible the amount of deer that are harvested but so again like when it's not a clean kill, do I feel bad? Absolutely. When it's a perfectly clean kill, do I feel better about it? Absolutely. That becomes from a respect thing. But I, I don't feel like me personally that I put wildlife on the pedestal that some people do. And it doesn't mean they're wrong. It doesn't mean I'm right or vice versa, in my opinion. It's just it's a different connection that people have to the world. 
Um, I assume for you, Dave, since you asked this question, that uh, I would assume, and I might be wrong, that you fall more in line with Justin's way of thinking. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I grew up, I I started hunting when I was 12 years old and killed a few deer, uh, but I wasn't nearly as successful as I have been in recent years. So, you know, I kind of consider myself a a born-again hunter, whatever you want to call it, of finding success in later years of my life. So now that I am fortunate enough to have the opportunity to harvest more animals, I am battling that feeling with every uh, with every hunt with every harvest and i think it's human nature to become desensitized a bit sure for sure the more times you experience something even if it's the most exciting thing in the world like a roller coaster for example roller coasters lose their pop their sting so the more you experience something the less meaningful it becomes in a way yeah and some people will say well if you're not getting that feeling then you you should be done hunting and that's not it for me that's not true because uh i shake like crazy after i shoot a deer like just like the nerves and the excitement even does like I, i get all kinds of jacked up and pumped up that is the best high the most it's fun. That's why we're doing this. We enjoy it. Uh, and I know it's going to provide for my family. And, oh, man, if if you ain't getting some sort of fever, that's when, for me. Something's wrong. That's for me. That's when I draw the line. When it becomes ho-hum business, when killing a deer becomes the same as catching a bluegill, literally the same, I think I'm done. Yeah, for me personally. Agreed. I still get shaky in the blind when I'm duck hunting even and I've killed hundreds of ducks and it's still so exciting when you see birds work in and they're interacting with you so yeah. that that feeling is probably probably one of the driving forces behind this whole sport yeah totally and we talked about this earlier tonight if you had to give up everything outdoors related what would you do and you know I, I, for me it was turkey hunting uh I don't get emotional over turkeys, but I get fired up. <laughs> I love killing turkeys, man. Uh, so, okay. Uh, what was the next question? So, with the overpopulation, uh, with that deer accident we just witnessed. So, here in Michigan, deer population is out of control in Metro Detroit. How can we, as citizens, help with that besides killing more does and joining Michigan Bowhunter Association? And is it possible to... Pos- petition parks or cities to allow hunting so for example in metro detroit there are the state parks there are metro parks there are oakland county parks Uh, metro parks do not allow hunting of any form Uh, oakland county parks sometimes some do only allow archery and then the state parks are obviously open for everything else and then the cities in metro detroit like the West, you know, the Bloomfield Hills, you know, that sort of area where the deer population really is truly out of control, ton of deer accidents, ton of property damage. Um, All of those cities ban hunting. So what can we do on the citizens level to help correct that problem? Well, that would have been a great question for the panel because that's a question I'm wondering too is, I think earlier I kind of said you got to put your money where your mouth is and joining organizations and speaking up. And if you don't stand for something, you know, um, these um, boards of trustees, these uh, city leaders, these people that make these rules, they uh, these elected officials, if they don't think or know there's a problem, we can't fix it. So. Um, the problem, we kind of had this in Ann Arbor a few years ago. It was too many deer. Uh, they brought in a company called White Buffalo. And at a, uh, a, a low, low price of $1,500 a doe, they came in at night into the city parks. And they tranquilized does. And then they performed um, spays on them. Sterilization. Sterilization. I ended up getting one of those deer. You did? did? Really? Yeah. Yeah. So here's the the dirty little secret of that whole program, because I talked to some of the biologists that were running that program. And here's why they don't do that program anymore. 70% of those deer died from infection. Wow. Yep. Because you cut open a deer 
You went inside. You performed a surgical procedure. You stitched it back up. Where's that deer going to go do? It's going to go lay in the dirt. That's what deer do. Right? Doesn't have enough antibiotics. Doesn't have aftercare. Wounds got affected. Did it... Uh, did it lower you know the ones that survived didn't have babies and the ones that died didn't have babies the downside is the ones that died from infection didn't go to the soup kitchens didn't go to guys like justin didn't go to all the other um put to good use so the following year when they came in those sharpshooters they just killed them those deer thankfully did go to the uh the this the kitchens and get you know ground up and and went to food for um you know the people in need here here's the problem though you could have done that with bow hunting was there a cost Easily. difference between the sterilization and the culling there was not Be, really nope because it was the same amount of time invo- involved and it just was like a different focus because wow. in, we know with the sterilization, they, they, they still baited them. They still shot them at night. Then they'd go in and do the surgery and then let them go. Okay, so the surgery and letting them go part, well, that cost was transferred into the gutting them, dragging them, processing, you know, okay. um, because, you know, all the, you know not all the process, processors were, like, donating their their time and, and their talent to, you know, provide the meals. So, um Going back to the question, what can we do? Well, A, we can join groups like Michigan Bow Hunters. <laughs> Michigan Bow Hunters is working within the Metro Park system, is working within county parks and stuff to get bow hunting, specifically bow hunting, bow hunting back into these parks. Have we had success? Yes. We Genesee County Parks had a bow hunt. It's been probably about 10 years now, but they had a raffle system and a bow hunt, and bow hunters came in and successfully harvested uh, deer out of there. They haven't done it since. I don't know if that's just because of the public peer pressure or there hasn't been a need in the Genesee County Park system. But uh, my friend Josh Hawkins actually shot a couple of deer on that system. That was actually kind of neat because they did earn a buck. Oh, cool. Oh, okay. Yeah, so you had to shoot a doe and then get it checked in, and then you, you could shoot a buck. Um, unfortunately, I don't know the numbers, but I do know that MBH was behind uh, support for that. So um, I, I think what can you do as a single person? Probably not a whole lot. But, again, more voices put collectively. together. Collectively. Joining your statewide organizations. And then speaking up once you become a member – let the organization you're in, be it Michigan Bow Hunters, Michigan Longbow, or whoever, let them know that this is an issue. Let them know that, you know, point them in the right direction. Say, I joined because I need your help with this. Okay? So we can't fight battles we don't know aren't happening. Being a member is a good way to, uh, you know, to put a spotlight on something like that. And that's exactly how Meat Eater closed their show. Steve Rinella at the end of the show... People were already getting out of their seats and leaving, and he called everyone's attention back to him, and he said, you guys need to unite. Gave us a call to action, Yep. Yep. He said unite. He said protect the things that you love, whether it's the wild, the ground, the water, or the air. Protect and fight for it, because if you don't, they're going to take it away from us. Which we're seeing out west, unfortunately. Exactly. So. And another thing, too, is convince your buddies that shooting a doe is just as cool as shooting a spike or a fork or or any kind of buck for that matter. Yeah, make shooting does great again. <laughs> <laughs> so, and uh, I'm going to turn this one back on you two with a little trivia of my own. So while I was looking up those numbers, uh, I have the percentages of total deer taken um, and the percentage of what do you think, uh, how many bucks were taken. So I have firearm, archery, and youth season. So this is going to be the youth hunt uh, in September, the archery season from October 1st through November 14th, and the firearm season November 14th through November 30th. So which one do you guys think is going to be the highest ratio and lowest ratio of bucks taken? I think probably the highest ratio of of bucks to does is probably going to be the archery season. I would say the the highest ratio is going to be the firearm season 
and I will add a little caveat to that is I think most of those deer are a year and a half old. Probably. I mean, the mandatory reporting doesn't have ages. Yeah. But um, now watch it, be, watch it be like youth because they kill a bunch of bucks. It yes, is. They do. It is. It youth. is youth. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. But granted, the, the number, right, the number of bucks taken is, is significantly lower, but strictly right. doing the ratios here. So youth at 79% bucks. Archery, number two, 72 and this was very surprising at firearm being the lowest at only 62%. Okay. I was I was very shocked. That's still a lot of bucks. It is. It, it yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. <laughs> uh, yeah, make shooting does great again. Um, I, I, I think those numbers will change as we continue to go into the, you know, the muzzleloader season, the late firearm season, and then, of course, the doe-only seasons that happen. Yeah, a lot of a lot of people's focus shift after that November 30th. So, yeah, once the rut's over, they start looking for slick heads. Or or the, I'll shoot anything, guys. Yeah, I haven't got like the any, button bucks. I haven't got anything yet, so I'm going to shoot something. Exactly. Now, listen, I've killed plenty of button bucks. <laughs> Never on purpose. <laughs> Not gonna lie, They're gonna be tasty. The it other happens. the other morning, it happened. I had a forky come out in front of me, and I was tempted because I have an empty freezer, and I need some meat. But he lived to see another. Sometimes day. that's the only option you got. This season has been a struggle for me. I probably would have shot a small buck this year yeah. if I got the chance, but I never even got a chance at that. Are you but, done? Uh, I'm not totally I done. Mean, I know you're a big waterfowl guy. Yeah, waterfowl season just wrapped up this weekend, so I'm gonna take some time to. Let my body rest a little bit, and then probably going to get into some late season doe hunts. But in Oakland County, here's the question: Would you use your if we were a single buck state? Would you use your single buck tag on a small buck? I probably wouldn't, and I kind of hold that rule already for myself. I try to. I don't think I would shoot more than one buck a, a season. Probably a two doe and one buck guy if I if I can. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I, I, okay, so I've already killed a deer this year. So this is coming from a guy that's got one in the freezer, you know. But um, I'm, I'm in an area where there's plenty of does. I, I don't think that I would. Here's the thing. I would not get the joy out of killing a forky that maybe the neighbor kid would. So I'll leave it for the neighbor kid. I agree. Yeah. I would get much more enjoyment out of a old mature doe than I would a For year sure. and a half old forky. Well, I mean, I'll I'll take a young doe that just lost her spots. She's probably going to eat pretty good. <laughs> that would be a tasty <laughs> deer. <laughs> if they got milk on their lips, they're pretty yummy. <laughs> so, well, that's pretty much going to wrap up. Did we have any more questions? Or that was that it. About, that's about it. And as we pull right into uh, Justin's driveway here back uh, home, uh, thank you guys for. Uh, of a, course. Going to the show with me. It was a blast. And then I know it was a little weird um, podcasting on the way home, but uh, I thought it worked out pretty good. It made the car ride very short. That's it really, really did. Flew by. <laughs> it really did. Well, one of the reasons it took us a while to get there is we ran into traffic. And made a wrong turn. And made a, a bad r- navigator. <laughs> <laughs> he's gonna he's gonna call me a bad navigator when he was fifteen freaking minutes late. <laughs> and then he pulls in the driveway and has a phone conversation for five minutes before getting out of his car. Luckily it had no effect on the night though. It didn't really matter at all. <laughs> we still work. had a we still had a great dinner, had a had a uh, a good little chat. It was funny. We're, so the show was in downtown Royal Oak. That's probably the most um masculine crowd that's ever hit downtown Royal Oak. For sure. There was more beards and camouflage (laughs) and meat eater shirts. and We all started out like a sore thumb. There was not a vegetarian to be found. No. (laughs) The amount of First Light and Sitka and Vortex hats and shirts and jackets were exponentially more tonight than ever before. (laughs) Absolutely. And again, we were with like-minded individuals. Absolutely. That was fun. That was really cool to hang out with some hunting guides. Even though we didn't, I didn't personally talk to a bunch of them. It felt like we were part of a community for sure tonight. Yeah. Well, here's the thing: any, pretty much anyone in that theater, we'd get along with. 
Absolutely. You know, they could have sat down and had a drink or dinner with us, and we have something to talk about. Yeah. You know, so, and that's the way it is with the Michigan Bowhunters Association. We have members in every county of the state, all 83 counties across the state, and we even have some out-of-state members. When you become a member of the Michigan Bowhunters Association, you've got brothers and sisters that think just like you across the state. So, again, I'm going to wrap up this show the way I always do. Again, thank you guys uh, very much for coming on the show. Get outdoors. It's a wild place to be. All right. We'll see you next week. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Michigan Bowhunters podcast. Please make sure to visit our website at www.michiganbowhunters.com to learn about becoming a member of the Michigan Bowhunters Association. Thank you.